Well, good morning. Glad to see all of you here today. Uh, I'm going to pick up where I left off last week uh, to kind of finish that uh, idea from the passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 8 through 11. It's kind of part two. I, uh, I took an opportunity this week to pick up a book I I'd bought recently on Kindle and on the, my Kindle subscription. And one of the things that uh, I picked up was a book called The History of Welsh Baptists from 63 to 760. Uh, and it's a interesting read. Now, I know it doesn't sound interesting. If you're not a history guy like me, I, I like history. And I got to reading uh, about some of the uh, congregations in uh, what is now Great Britain and Wales um, from the time of Christ, right after the time of Christ, in about 63 A.D., on up uh, through the 1700s. And one of the interesting little facts there was it was a purely primitive Baptist church idea. They were really local congregationalists to the point that uh, <clears throat> Roman church hadn't taken place yet in the early uh, early first or late first century, not until about the third century when uh, Roman Catholicism kind of came in and killed everybody and took over. That's kind of what happened uh, to the Welsh Baptists there. In fact, there's one story of a group uh, where uh, a guy by the name of Austin came in and was giving a, uh, he met with all the local pastors of, of the area. And there were about, uh, in, that, in that particular one, uh, three or four hundred different pastors of local churches from all over uh, the British Islands had come there to talk to him about what was about to happen. And um, they, he really wanted to press upon, upon them the point of infant baptism. And if you know anything about Baptists, uh, we're kind of stiff-necked about that because we don't find infant baptism in Scripture. And infant baptism was being touted as the, the next thing uh, that they were going to have to submit to. They bristled their necks and said, no, we're not going to. And subsequently, 1,200 pastors and laymen were consequently killed because they refused to submit to infant baptism as a part of their services. And uh, it's interesting that all that goes on. And, and I do it in context, and I want you to understand. They were hiding people out. The Baptists were. They were hiding people out who were against this, uh, this heresy that was coming in uh, to try to keep them from getting killed. And uh, that love among the brethren really prospered during that time. In fact, the, the early church uh, there in, uh, in Wales was, was actually, they, they thought they had wiped them all out, but what they didn't understand was it went underground and uh, caught on fire again and would, would at one point uh, uh, toss out the, uh, the idea of Roman Catholicism for a while, uh, much later. But what's interesting about it all is, is the love for the brethren expressed. And I think for some of us, we, we kind of get the love for the brethren, but we don't really understand it the way they understood it. The notion of love for the brethren kind of changes when persecution heats up. In fact, next week's lesson, Lord willing, uh, is going to be dealing with righteous persecution, about what it means to live under righteous persecution and how we should live. Uh, it's kind of an extension of, of the past few weeks we've been talking about living that Christian life. Uh, a few weeks ago, we began a study in the first part of the chapter dealing with how to live counter to the culture as a Christian. And then last week and this week, we're looking at living life with the love for the brethren. Next week, it's living life under persecution. And so we'll, we'll take a look at that next time. But I want you to kind of get an idea of what it means to 
suffer and love for the love the brethren in that way because honestly it's coming back and it's coming back with a vengeance we just don't see it quite yet we're seeing the startings of it we're seeing the idea that uh much like under nero where uh you know he watched rome burn and blamed it on the christians and it was easy to blame the christians because they needed a group to hate it's coming back around we're a little too as as Christians, we're a little too uh, stiff-necked for the world. We say that Jesus is the only way. They say there's many ways. There's all kinds of, of I don't know, divisions in our society, and, and it's easy to blame those whom you, you know, don't agree with. What I need you to understand, though, as brethren, how we love one another is going to be manifested in those times. We're going to take a look at that part today and what those actually looks what that actually looks like kind of the rubber meets the road kind of thing so if you have your bibles turn with me to first peter chapter 4 we're going to begin in verse 8 and read through verse 11 <clears throat> here's what it says <clears throat> oh please stand if you would in reverence and honor the word of god please thank you beginning in verse 8 it begins this way and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves for charity shall cover the multitude of sins Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold <clears throat> grace of God. And if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as in the ability which God giveth. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity ask you, Lord, to help us and to show us the way. Help us to love one another more fervently. Help us to love one another when the times are good and when the times are hard. That, Lord, we may rejoice both together in your Son, Jesus. Forgive us, bless us, and help us today. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So we talked last week a little bit about what it means to live life with love for the brethren. And the point basically was this. Christians should have a fervent love for one another. It ought to, it ought to be to the point of passionate love for one another. We ought to love one another so much that people see it and think, man, why do they, why do they put up with each other so well? Why do they deal with each other so well? Well, because we have the same love that Christ loved us with and we love backwards towards one another. The primary thing is that we love one another first and then that love spills over. It's easy when, when people come to the church and they, they begin to see love for one another here in the church and they go, wow, you guys have something really special here. There's no backbiting, there's no uh, tattling, there's no none of these weird things that a lot of churches do. And there are some churches who do a lot of that. The gossip mill runs. Here's what we can't do. We can't fall into that trap of the world and that's what it is. We have to have an unfeigned love for the brethren. It has to be something that's ironclad. This is what they would call it in the outside world, a safe space for Christians here. Here, we tell each other what's going on in our lives. We confess sins one to another. We lift up one another. We hold each other accountable. All of those things are here and are exercised. And that's all part of loving the brethren. 
So I'm going to give you a few things that we talked about last time so we can get on the same page. First, a Christian should have love for their brothers and sisters who practice righteousness. We ought to love one another when we're doing the, the works righteousness things. When, when God has called us out of darkness into light, He sets our feet upon a path, and that pathway produces works. And we love one another in those works too. Secondly, we also we, we do it without hypocrisy. We hate evil. We cling to the good things, right? And if you keep on going down that, that, down that idea, the next one is the world system hates us when we do those things. They don't like us when we, when we talk about Jesus being the only way. They don't like us when we talk about uh, doing good things and right things. They say that our, our good and right things are evil now. The Bible warns us of those folks. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's going on in our society right now. And, and there's a woe for them, and I hate that, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 5. You don't have to go there. But I understand the idea is that they won't like us outside the outside world. We have to love no matter what. We have to love our enemies, and we have to love our brethren. A lot of love going on. Now, it starts in the household of faith. It starts in the household of God. Right here is where it starts, the church. And in this church, and in our church, and other churches like ours, we have to practice love for the brethren. That's why we prefer one another. There was kind of a joke, if you're on the, the uh, Messenger page on, uh, on Messenger, we, we were going around this last week, and um, one of the things was we were, somebody was looking for an accountant. And uh, I just jokingly said something about it, uh, about, you know, preferring one another. I'm glad somebody was listening. And sure enough, uh, we, we do. We want to use our brethren who, who are in the certain places where we need help and need things. We go to them first as a primary. And then we have to go out from there. But if we've got enough people in the church, here's, here's the great thing about that. God puts everybody in different places here. You need a photographer? I got one here in the church. You need an accountant? I've got one of those. You need a lineman, well, like call Carol Electric. He works there. We got lots of people that are around places, teachers and, and other people in the church who are making a difference in the community. Our responsibility is to go to them first if we have need of their services or need of them specifically. Some of us are, are counselors and some of us are pastors and different things. And we all pull together and we have different resources for different things in different times of life. The love for the brethren then operates through those gifts and that's what i want to talk to you about today is those gifts that come along so in our in our study here we're going to be looking primarily at verses 10 and 11 today and in 10 and 11 i'm going to read 10 again because 10 is where we kind of start this it says as every man hath received the gift even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god one of the greatest things about this particular verse is it tells us that we've all been gifted We've all got different gifts. And no matter your gift, you can use it to minister. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it's cooking. Maybe you can bless somebody with, you know, cookies or cooking or anything. Did you hear that little shameless plug for sweets? It's right there. Here's the thing. All of us have gifts, and we use them in different ways. So I want to go through some different ways in Scripture that we can use our gifts. And so let me get over here to my... my Notes real quick. There's more notes than I think on some of this stuff. There we go. So how do Christians use their gifts? Well, 
Hospitality is a gift. I talked about my wife last week. She has that gift of hospitality. And, and at a moment's notice, she shows up with food and she shows up with beverages and everything for people to eat and drink and, and, and be hospitable among, among people. And she uses that gift to minister to others. There are plenty of other gifts out there. In Scripture, we see them here and there, and I want to kind of go through some of them. Uh, let's start with our duties toward our brethren. Let's see what the duties are. Turn, if you will, back to Romans chapter 12. I started down this road last week, and, and I really want to hit it hard today. Verses 10 through 13 basically give us our duties toward the brethren. Now, I say duties. I need you to understand the, the notion of a brother or sister doing without when the brothers or sisters of the rest of the church have means is silly. We should never allow the brethren to suffer when we can do something about it. We have duties towards one another. Now, I only say that to the church. And I need you to please understand that. I know that there are people out there who, who argue with me about what the church constitutes, but I'm going to tell you what a, what a church actually is. Uh, using its own etymology, basically church is a congregation. You have to assemble to be a congregation. So we assemble here at Cornerstone, we have a church. Church is not everybody who comes in the door. Church is everybody who joins up with this group to perform the acts of works righteousness produced in you through Christ Jesus our Lord. The notion of a church is a local congregation that goes and unites together for a common cause. In this case, the spreading of the gospel. So this church is its own. That church down there is its own. That church over there is its own. And we all are churches of Christ if we're following His doctrine. Right? So when I talk about the church, I need you to understand it in a local context. Because everywhere in Scripture we see church, the word church, except for two times, we see it as a local called assembly. The two, two times it's not are mentioned specifically by Christ in the, in the whole of all of eternity when church is going to be gathered together anyway. And the notion of a, of a gathered church is still a gathered church. They have to meet. For our purposes, we meet at a specific time and place because we're caught in time and space. I would love to tell you that I'm part of a congregation uh, of, of millions throughout history, and I will be at one point, but we, we have to be a congregation first. We have to get there. I haven't entered into eternity yet. And even when we get there, it's still going to be local. And it's still going to be a community, a congregation. So I tell you all that so that you understand our duties toward our brethren. That means that a local congregation has an expectation here to help one another. Let me give them to you real quick. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Now, let me just tell you, in a, in a universal church idea, that doesn't work. I mean, I can say I love and I will love everybody. But pay attention, it's not just about that. It says be kindly affectioned. The notion is, is that we show affection. You can't show affection to everybody in the universe all at once. Can't happen. It's a local idea. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. That only happens in a local church context. Secondly, let's go on, keep going just a little bit further. In honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, and distributing to the necessity of the saints, <clears throat> and given to hospitality. Now, there are several things mentioned here, but if you'll, if you'll take note and just idealize this a little bit and bring it to a local congregational level, 
You understand why now. <clears throat> it's hard to be patient in tribulation if you're not going in the tribulation with them. I mean, you can't say that. I mean, we may pray for the folks in China about all the persecution they're going to, and you should pray for them. Don't misunderstand me. But it's a lot harder to pray for a congregation you've never seen or been a part of. The prayer is different when it comes here and it involves us and we're praying one for another because we're hurting in our community. That's a whole different thing. I, I, back years ago when uh, uh, we, had, we were living in Mississippi and just to the north of us, there was a little town that got destroyed by a tornado. And I mean, the outpouring was just incredible to see everybody come together. There were prayer vigils held for those who passed away in the tornado. There were prayer vigils held for those who were working through the tornado. And then there were people on the ground, boots on the ground, showing up with chainsaws, bringing love to the brethren in a whole different way. And I watched as the community came together. Those kinds of things are, are what happens when, when brotherly love happens. Churches became stations for, to pick up food and water and necessities for the saints. And then beyond that, uh, our, our little church when we were in um, Louisiana, I was pastor of a mission church there, and it was about a year after Katrina, and there was still a whole lot to do in Louisiana then. Uh, it wasn't the, the hurricane itself. That did a lot of damage. It was actually all the tornadoes that spun off of it and wrecked the entire community where we lived to the point where we were a drop-off site for 30,000 pounds of food a month that we distributed to the, locality, the local people around us. But you know who got to take first part in that? The church. We helped our congregation out first. Our congregation, we had about 40 or 50 people, and, and we would distribute two or three sacks of groceries uh, a month to them first, and then everybody else in the community started getting it. It's funny, you always have stories that go along with it, and this is no different. I had, I had one lady who, they had, they'd start lining up about 7 o'clock that morning. We didn't start till 9. And they would start lining up the cars down. We had, uh, I had everybody mad at me. Uh, we, had, we were sitting on a piece of property that one side uh, was, a, was a state highway, the other side was a, a county road, and then the other side was a city road. It came up the backside. And I had all three of them trying to give me tickets for everybody who was coming down through there and having to wait on the side of the road. They were all mad at me. State troopers came by and said, you can't have people parked on the side of the highway. And I looked at them and I said, I didn't park them there. They're here for a distribution of food. I got wrote up in the paper about it and all, everything. Here's the thing. I had, I had one lady in particular who parked there early and the truck had, had arrived the, the day before. And all, so all of our people had come and, and we were sacking everything up and getting everything ready. And she noticed that several of our people were taking two or three or four bags to their vehicles. She pulled me aside and she said, it's not right what you're doing. I said, what's that? She said, you're giving all these people food ahead of all of us. I said, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what I'm doing. She said, why would you do that? I said, because my church are the ones who are handing it out to you all. I'm taking care of them first. They live here too. She got in a huff and got back in her car. Here's the thing. We take care of each other. That's the whole point of the passage. Because there will be times coming, and you're going to hear about it next week, when the world's going to come against us in unrighteousness. They want to destroy the Lord's church because they're part of the world system. They're part of Satan's system to destroy everything here, everything that God has ordained. 
And so when we look into this and we look into the duties of, of the brethren to one another, it has to start here first. And then from here, it spills out in the community. So when you have a healthy church where love is happening here, it will spill out in the community. And that's what we see all throughout history. So I want to give you some things here. First, we're devoted to one another in brotherly love. John chapter 13, verse 34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. You see, here's the thing. If you want the rest of the world to know that we're disciples of Jesus, it starts with love here. They'll see it. But if they see no difference between you here and you out there, if there's no difference, they're, they're not going to want anything you got. Because they see it just as lip service, as words. It's got to spill out. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another, right? You've got to have love for one another. Secondly, give preference toward one another. Verse 10b, the second part of that verse right there, it says... Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. That's what we were talking about with using different people in the church and their various ministries. We prefer one another. You know, it used to be back in, back in the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s that people joined churches for a whole different reason than they joined now. Now, they'll tell you that in a lot of cases it was because, uh, you know, they wanted to be a part of a local congregation. Well, they did because they had people in the churches... They preferred one another. You went to church to, to build your clientele list. Business was conducted at churches. You say, well, that was the downfall of the church. Eh, whatever. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I would much rather come to, come, to, come to the church and see people I know, people I love, people who are praying for me, and then have ministries that I can get behind and help, or have ministries that I can get uh, some help from. Here's where I'd rather get it from. I don't, I don't want to necessarily go out to the world and get their version of it and give them money to, so that they can you know, further their cause. I want to help my brethren further theirs. To help my brethren. You say, well, that's awful short-sighted. Uh, whatever. Here's the thing. My brothers and sisters in Christ come first. Period. Now, here's the good news on the other side of that. When I show preferential treatment to my brothers and sisters... That shows love. Love spills out and love spills over. And we start helping other people too. People on the fringes where we don't, we don't know quite much, that much about them, but we help those people. And then that goes a little further out and they help other people. And then it continues and it just keeps growing. See, love doesn't subtract. It doesn't divide. It multiplies. That's how love works. My, my kids ask me from time to time, Dad, who do you love the best? Really? And I tell them I love them all equally. What does that mean? I, I love my oldest son 100%. I love my daughter 100%. I love my youngest son 100%. How can you love 300%? Because love multiplies, it doesn't divide. It's just that simple. So we give preference one toward another. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Right? I want to prefer my brethren to the point where it's not really about me at all. It's about them. And if you did that with me and I did that with you, we would all love a little better and love a little more. 
Galatians 6.10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, see, you understand what that means, right? That means we especially take care of those of our brethren, but we also are doing good to everyone else. It's not like we're going to cut everybody else off. The notion is, is that we especially go after and love the brethren. That's exciting stuff to me. Third thing, I guess, or the, I'm not sure if it's the third or the fifth or what we are at, but here's where we are. I'll, I'm going to call this number four. Be fervent in spirit. Okay, be fervent in spirit. Verse 11, I'm going to read 11 in, uh, in, in our passage in Romans. It says this. Be slothful, uh, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Right? So let's talk about that fervent in spirit. Fervent means to be boiling over. It means to be impassioned. We're to be in spirit boiling over. You know what that means? Literally, when, when I, and I gave the illustration last week about uh, my wife's potatoes on the, on the stove. I, I don't know how you keep them from boiling over, but apparently we don't know how to do that yet. They still boil over. Um, and, and you have to go in there and you stir them down and, you know, whatever you do with potatoes. Add salt or whatever. I don't know. But here's the thing. It's boiling over. Our spirits need to be boiling over like that. Not to the point where we look silly. You, you know what I'm talking about? There, there is a, 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 a place for boiling over in that sense. But, but understand, there's a reason why in Ephesians chapter 5, it says being, you know, being not, uh, drunk with wine. The reason why is because you don't want to have that appearance of being silly. But man, I get very happy and very adulated, I guess. Is, I don't know if that's the right word. But I get very excited when I get together with the brethren and we start talking about Scripture, we start talking about the Lord Jesus, we start talking about ministries within the church, we start talking about all these things and it gets me excited. And it begins to boil over. And other people get excited. That's why whenever I, I love... Um, when we have uh, occasionally we have the mission rallies the the local association comes here and gets together and they start talking about the things they're doing in their church we start talking about the things we're doing in our church we all kind of get together and start talking about those kinds of things and everybody gets excited and, and then my favorite part with the i guess it was two or three mission rallies ago i did something we don't normally do and uh, they were all sitting here and we had a missionary come and he was speaking he was uh, over in uh, thailand i believe and he was getting his missions report and everything. And he asked to see if anybody would be willing to come alongside and help him. And when he handed the service back off to me so I, could, so I could talk a little bit more, I had everyone stand. And I said, now we're going to take up an offering for this missionary. And you would have thought that I sucked all the air out of the room when I did it. Because we don't do that. I love it when they tell me we don't do that. Last time I checked, I was the pastor of the church, and I did it. Not because I, I wanted the money necessarily. My issue was I wanted to make sure this missionary was taken care of. He had come in on furlough from Thailand to give, to give our association a, an update on his work over there, and he needed some help. And I told them flat out, I said, the reason I'm having you stand instead of sitting to take up this offering is so you can reach your wallet. I was very plain with them. I said, I want you to be able to get into your wallet to get money out to give this missionary. And they did. They took up several hundred dollars for him that day to help him out of a situation he was in. And I got pulled aside later and by, by two or three guys and said, well, you know, preacher, we don't actually do that here. We, we have a mechanism. I said, look, I don't care. It's what I felt led to do. It's what we were going to do. 
Why? Because I want to help the brethren. You see, there's this little phrase in Ephesians chapter 3 that says, family of God. Now, as much as I love the local church and I believe that the local church is right here, this is where, where, where all the ministry happens, I know that of the family of God, all my brothers and sisters are out there too. And when we get some of those that come in, I want to help where I can. It's kind of like the extended family, right? I have my local family, my wife and my kids and, they, and their kids, and, and they're all right there locally. But then I have that extended family, that uncle over there, you know, that crazy uncle over there. And I have this cousin over here. And we're all family, and we help out where we can. That's what families do. At least that's what families used to do. We've kind of hit that age of dysfunction. I ought to write a book on it, I'm telling you. The age of dysfunction. That's really where families are today. So now let's bring it all back here. Fervent in spirit means that I'm going to love abundantly. I'm going to love fervently. I'm going to let my spirit boil over with love for my brethren. That's where you get scriptures like Galatians 6, 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, the next one comes right behind it. It's to be serving the Lord. To be serving the Lord tells us then uh, we, we are... Look at, look at 11, verse 11c in our passage in Romans. Here's what it says. Fervent spirit serving the Lord. Now, pay attention to that part because this is where sometimes we miss it as believers. Service is not you showing up here. Now I'm going to say that again in case you missed it. And I want everybody to hear me. Service is not you showing up here on Sunday morning. This is, this is not your reasonable service. This is just you showing up to get fed. Would you show up at your dinner table to get fed? Absolutely you would. That's just what you normally do. Service begins when we leave here. Service is when we congregate together and maybe go and do something as a group. Or service is in a different way. It's always helping someone, ministering somewhere. Where is your ministry? Serving the Lord is not about just showing up at church. This is what we do because we're brethren. It's kind of like all of us showing up for you know, family mealtime. Every Sunday, my, my entire family gets together on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. For family, for our family time, and we play games and we uh, eat food and we laugh and we watch little Emma try to pull Otis's tail. It's kind of what we do, and we watch him growl and go hide behind the couch. That's what he does. And so we 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 have that time together. That's just part of being in the family. That's what this is, right? As you come in the door, there's a sign over there behind Josh that. Basically gives you Hebrews 11.25. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. We put that up there so you remember, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. This is, just, this is just good times right here. Service begins when we practice. I wish I had my three circles up here. We, 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 ask, we ask three things of our congregation. The members of this church, we ask you to do three things. And only three things. It's not complicated with us. First one, I'm looking at it right back there. It says... Loving our God. Now, that's the first thing. We love God. Second is we learn of Christ. And the third thing is we live out our faith. Those three things right there, the last one, living out faith, is what we're talking about. What does it look like for you to have a ministry in service to the Lord? 
Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatsoever thy hands findeth to do, do it with all thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. All your being is about service to the Lord. <clears throat> you owe no man nothing but God everything. It's that simple. Everybody always asks, well, how do you, where do you draw the line with personal life and work life and all those things? Believe it or not, i got an answer for you. Here's where you draw the line. In which form or fashion does God get glory in? Does He get glory in your work? If He does, I'd say you're on the right track. If God doesn't get glory in your work... If God can't get glory in your work, if you're not giving Him glory in your work, you may need to look again. You say, you don't understand, I'm not allowed to talk about my faith at work. Okay? So what do you do? Well, I, the way I see it, you've got three options. You can either talk about the Lord at your work, and they fire you. Or you can not talk about the Lord at your work, and... God doesn't get any glory. Or you can quit and go find another job. Now let me caution you. Go find a job before you quit your other job. I'm, I'm proof in that pudding, okay? Here's the thing. All of us are responsible for giving glory to God. We have a ministry, a service to the Lord. If you've been born again by His blood at His cost, He, owes, he owns you and you're His. And you need to give Him glory where it's due. It's just that simple. It's not even more complicated than that. Next one is to rejoice in hope. This is one of my favorite ones. Look at verse 12a in our passage in Romans. Here's what it says. Rejoicing in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Continue instant in prayer. That's the whole verse, right? The first one of those is, is this one. Rejoicing in hope. What an opportunity you have. You get to show everyone else around you the hope that lies within you. That's from a different passage, right? That's from 1 Peter chapter 3. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 there, or 11, or something like that, it says um, that we're to let every man see that hope that's in you and tell every man of the hope that's in you. What an awesome responsibility we have to share that hope. For the Bible says we're ambassadors for Christ, right? So we're serving the Lord for His glory, and we're rejoicing in hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, it's written there so we can see it, so that we can rejoice in hope. I'm very excited about my hope. My hope goes beyond this world. That's what the world doesn't get. That's why when, when those Christians, those early Christians, wouldn't recant their faith in Christ, Nero rolled them in, uh, I don't know what they called it, pitch is what they called it, basically a tar. Rolled them in tar, stuck them on stakes, and lit them on fire to light up his garden party. You'll learn a little bit more about that next week. We'll talk about persecution. But I rejoice. See, the world doesn't understand that beyond this world we have hope. That's what we share with everybody. I know that everybody's getting all eh, wound up about, oh, you Christians, you're just trying to 
shove your, faith, shove your uh, religion down our throats, right? That's what they always tell me. And it's really not about that. It's really helping them understand that God has died so that they might live eternally. But they really don't want to see that. What they see is us trying to shove religion down their throats. You see, Christianity is not a religion. That's where the mistake is made. Oh, I know that there are people out there who practice it as a religion. And let me help you with that. If, if Christianity is, is a religion to you, you're doing it wrong. See, Christianity is meant to, have a, you're meant to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. It's a relationship issue. That's what most people don't get. So we rejoice in hope. Second or seventhly or whatever, whatever, whatever number we're on this week, I don't even know. Persevering in tribulations. Now this is what we're going to talk about primarily next week, but I just want to touch on it. How in the world do we deal with this thing called persecutions? Right? It, there is what it says. It says, patient in tribulation. That's not fun. Can I just tell you that up front? This is where you become more mature. This is where maturity comes in. This isn't the place where you're a newbie. You may have to go through it some as a newbie, but you will gain experience points quickly. Now, I know that I'm speaking to a younger generation. We used to have video games that were RPGs, role-player games, right? And in those role-playing games, you, you amassed points of experience. Well, guess what? Tribulation and persecution give you experience points in your faith. Now, here's what that does for you. That allows you to persevere. That allows you to withstand. That allows you to be patient. Let me give you some scripture on that that will help you. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It says this, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Who in their right mind glories in tribulations? I mean, show of hands, how many of you love going through tribulations? Yeah, no, nobody does. In fact, that's kind of where my, uh, I don't want to call them brethren, where my other, uh, okay, where certain preachers say that if you're, if you're going through tribulations, it's obvious because you don't have enough faith. That's, that's malarkey. That's just junk. That's junk theology placed in a junk ecclesiology wrapped up in soteriology, okay? And I'm just going to tell you straight up here, Tribulation is going to come. How you endure it is determined by your experience and your faith. I have faith, and I have some experience in tribulation. But God pushes that on me sometimes so that I can learn a little more, so that I can gain a little more perspective, so I can get that patience. But let's go through it again. This is Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. And not only so, we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation now worketh patience. And patience experience. See where this is going? All right, it gives you more experience. And experience gives you hope. And hope maketh us not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You see, I love the progression there. Tribulation... <laughs> works something else out, right? Patience. Patience then works something else out. Experience. Experience worked out something else. That's hope. And hope makes us not ashamed. Oh, I'm hoping I get to that level. But here it is, right? And the next thing in the last part of that verse 12 says, be devoted to prayer. 
Now, there's a lot of scripture around prayer, and, and you're talking about some of that in Sunday school this morning. But, but mainly this. When we talk about it from our perspective here in this passage in 12, it says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. This is where at the moment's notice you drop on your knees and you just pray. There have been times when uh, this last weekend, for instance, is a great thing for me. I, I got to spend quite a bit of time with God in prayer. And at first it was a very selfish prayer. My, 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 my beginnings of my prayers this week were very selfish. And uh, I'm glad none of you are here through the week when I'm here. You would have heard some screaming at one point. Asking, begging, pleading with God. It was, I was just a big snotty mess. And then when I got serious, I came in here, I came down to the altar, and I just dropped. And I began to pray. Now, the Bible tells us to be instant in prayer, right? But it also tells us something else, too. Take a look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 17. It's just a quick verse. Pray without ceasing. Now, not only are we to be instant in prayer, we're to be without ceasing in prayer. What does that even mean? What does it mean to not, be, to not cease? Does that mean we go around and we're just chanting, uh, you know, kind of not really understanding what we're saying? We're just kind of babbling around? No. It means that we're in a constant state of prayer. At any moment, we just look to our Father. And, I, and I'm going to relate it to something that only I can understand. And, and unless you, you know, you, you'll understand it with grandkids, I guess. I'm getting older now. It's kind of that moment when you're walking at the park or you're walking outside and you're right next to traffic and all that and you've got the grip on your granddaughter's hand and, and, you're and she'll fight you and pull away and cry and, and kind of, but then she also looks to you every now and then when she's about to fall and she knows she, you've got her. That's a lot like praying, is walking with God and being instant in prayer. Right? Okay. Last thing I'm going to give you. By the way, there's also another scripture there for that. 1 Timothy chapter 2.8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. That's just a, a, a verse to help you understand the scope of your prayer. The last thing I'm going to give you this morning, well, I say the last thing. Yeah, maybe. Contribute to the needs of the saints. This is the last part in 13a in our passage in Romans. It says this, distributing to the necessity of the saints. Right? And right behind that on the, on the back end is the curtailing of that with, um, you know, giving over to them and helping them out, uh, giving to hospitality. So let's take a look at this and what it looks like. If we contribute to the needs of the saints in verse 13a, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Now there's a lot packed in there. But basically it says this, Timothy, I, Paul, am commanding you to warn those who are wealthy that not to be high-minded with their wealth. That wealth is there to be enjoyed, yes, but also there's a responsibility there, especially to the household of faith in here. It says, listen to this, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good. Now, 1 Timothy is written to pastors about their churches. 
And he tells them, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that you're to do good with your monies. You're to do the right things. You're to do the good things. It doesn't say give it all away. But he says you're to do good things with it. That they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. And the last part is this. You're also willing to communicate with other people. You're not high-minded about it, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 5 says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren, Paul says, <clears throat> Go before unto you and make up before, before your, beforehand your bounty, wherever you had notice of there before, that the same might be ready as a manner of bounty and not as covetous. Now, what he's talking about here is there's, he, he wrote ahead to the church, and he said, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you guys to set aside some monies. Because there's a need that's happening over here and, and I'm going to come and I'm going to take that money and I'm going to go distribute it to the necessity of the saints. That church was willing to go and do that. We do that too. We do it in the form of mission work. We do it in the form of helping the brethren and, and wherever there's need. All those parts are there. It's part of the ministry we have. Glory to God. Because all of us have found ourselves in dire straits one time or another where we've needed some help. Now listen, uh, I want to read this last part of this, and, and this is still 2 Corinthians. It says, But this I say unto you, he which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to, toward you, that you have always having sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Let me just help you out with this because inevitably I'm going to get some hate mail or something where people are going to tell me, you, you preachers are all about money. Can I just tell you, I've been a Baptist preacher for 17 years. Almost 18. And in that time, I, I don't get to deal with the finances of the church per se. But I have to preach on passages like this and they all look at me and everybody says, you preachers are all about money. Can I just tell you there's nothing further from the truth in that? It takes money to run a ministry, yeah. But I don't ask people outside the church here. We don't do uh, big garage sales where we invite the public to come in and buy our stuff so that we can maintain the church. We don't have chili cook-offs and we don't have all these other things. I, I don't ask Anybody outside the church to pay for the things of the church? I don't do it. Now, we've had some people try to give and, and do give some things like that. That's on them. That's their business. But I don't ask for it. As a church, it's our responsibility to take care of the brethren and to take care of what we've got. That's our responsibility. So I don't ask people who aren't members here to take care of that. We do that here best we can. The men here, we, we scrimp and we save and we push back and we, we do what we can to save on everything, right? That light's been out for four weeks back there. And I think it's just because we're afraid to get on the ladder. It's really high up there. We got a light bulb for it. If anybody wants to change it, I'll just let them. But I'm not getting back up on that ladder again. And Eric for sure isn't. I watched Eric change out this thing last time and we had him on a couple of tables and a ladder and everything else up here trying to reach that. Uh, a time before or something like that and he was scared to death here's the thing though we take care of one another here and we take care of our own needs that's where we are right 
All right, and the last one was given to hospitality. That's why I didn't want to say it was the last. The last is given to hospitality. That ought to be our second nature. It ought to be who we are. Loving the brethren, then, gives us the opportunity to act hospitably. That's why we have lunch on the grounds every single Sunday. You know, there's a lot of our people who are on fixed incomes, who don't have a lot of extra money, but they bring in an extra pot so that we have extra food to feed people who come. Now, I'm not telling you that to make you feel any certain way. I want you to understand, we want you to come and stay with us because we're hospitable. We want to be hospitable. I want you to stay and eat with us and have a good time with us. We try to be hospitable when we can. And that's who we are as Christians living in this crazy world and how we're supposed to respond to the brethren. Let's stand. All right. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord God, what a, a great time to be a part of the local New Testament church. We're so excited about what you're doing here, about all the lives that we're impacting. We've got new friends and old friends and everybody in between friends. Thank you, Lord, for that. And it's an opportunity to let them see the love that we have for our brethren. What a glorious time to be a part of that. Bless today and may everything we do and say give you honor and glory today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.